with this evening's talk, <clears throat> we'll discuss and explore the third, the second, the third, and the fourth domain of mindfulness. Last evening, we explored the first foundation of mindfulness, the body in the body. And I'd like to begin the uh, discussion this evening with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? The second domain of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And for those of you who might be interested, the Pali word is Vedanupasana. This foundation is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice. It's illuminating towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every single experience that comes in through each of the sense doors, the body touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, provides some kind of specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through sense door contact with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and very clearly classified into three groups. The first group, pleasant feeling. The second, unpleasant feeling. And the third, neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, which we could call neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or in response to mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment or aversion to sense to our experience is a result that very often very quickly follows directly from these feelings. So, for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, for most people there's almost an immediate emotional attachment to the feeling or to the object or to both. And when the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire then to get it back or to get another one comes up very quickly, either quite overtly or maybe more subtly. And so a craving for arises, with craving usually immediately preceded by dissatisfaction and sometimes also very quickly followed 
by a taste of state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being has been disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, which translates as stress, mental and physical stress. The experience of craving itself is experienced as some degree of a burning contraction, if we really see it clearly. So again, stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to a physical or mental contact with some object, most people immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion. Maybe fear or boredom or maybe hatred or anger or possibly disappointment. And we want to get rid of, or we want to get away from the object, or the feeling, or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're experiencing stress. As we begin to see our experience more and more clearly, we see that so much of the stress in this life comes directly from one's relationship to pleasant or unpleasant feelings. When the feeling is at least to some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant, what we could call neutral, Often, if you really consider it, often the tendency is to ignore what's going on. Not connecting to the present moment's experience. And maybe accompanied with a subtle or maybe not so subtle uh, a state of not wanting. Really not interested. Not interested in being uh, with the experience of the moment. I think it's quite safe to say that most all of us, or at least most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. And if it's not intense, we often just don't notice. We might think nothing's happening. And so again, we're craving something or experiencing the aversion of boredom or both. Without intimate and careful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally, to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. In fact, this very same object that produced a pleasant feeling in the mind 
sometimes within just moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind. And vice versa, of course. And so again, we experience attachment, clinging, and various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering. Remembering, as I spoke about on the first evening, this connection that mindfulness offers to really see things just as they are. So a story, a personal story, is an illustration of this. Quite a number of years ago now, I was sitting a three-month retreat uh, er, in the, it's autumn, early winter, at the Insight Meditation Society. And in those years, uh, there were shelves in what was a small back dining room that was attached to the large dining room there. And on those shelves in the small back dining room, uh, yogis kept their special stashes of things that um, that we all brought with us that we felt we were going to need and that we were didn't think that IMS would provide. And so I had my stash back there on one of those shelves. And one day on top of my stash, there was a note from the person who had a, a stash next to me. And I, at that point, had no idea who this person was. I hadn't noticed at all, hadn't paid any attention. And this note on top of my stash was offering me some green tea from his stash. And it was a very pleasant feeling came up, uh, mostly because I was being noticed, although I also liked green tea, so that was pleasant. But really, uh, to be honest, it was all about me being noticed. So I answered his note and I also had some green tea. Then a a day or two later a a second note came and the second note was offering me a hat because this person had noticed that I had had been going outside without a hat and then the temperatures were dropping it was getting cooler. Well, not such a pleasant feeling arose in my mind. I actually felt impinged upon at that point. I didn't like the attention at that point. But I answered the note very politely, and I thanked him, and I said, I have a hat. A couple days later, another note came on top of my stash. And this note was a question about practice, and a most decidedly unpleasant (laughs) feeling arose in my mind. And, and a very quick, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not very nice note. But fortunately, uh, mindfulness um, and wise discernment kicked in, <laughs> and I didn't write back a nasty note. In fact, I just simply relaxed and let go, and I didn't respond at all. No note. And at that point, then, the note stopped. At the end of the retreat, I spoke with this person and um, because I did finally notice who had their stash next to me. 
And he said he'd gone through a very similar process. Um, and he was very grateful, he told me, uh, after going through uh, some of his own inner turmoil, that I didn't answer him the last time. He said he, too, was very happy not to write any more notes. As I think probably all of you would agree, that when you feel a pleasant or un, when you feel a pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact through some sense door, the pleasant and un, unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object itself, nor is it within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling, is in one's mind. So what is it that most often is the root of the feeling that arise, arises in relationship uh, to, to experiences? And I think it's pretty obvious that um, in my three-month re- retreat story, the uh, the feeling tones and the subsequent actions of answering the first two notes and then the feeling tone followed by a reaction in my mind in relationship to the third note were very clearly coming from a sense of self, of me, as I spoke about my response for the first note. I was so pleased to be noticed, me, capital M-E, actually. When we begin to see that all of the feelings that we experience are within us, that we ourselves are really mainly, primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that really we can't blame others for the way we feel. What, for many of us, are habituated storylines such as, he made me feel angry. She made me feel terrible. He made me feel so happy. This place, these people, they make me feel so peaceful. Oh, they make me feel so miserable, etc., etc., as we begin to pay a really careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, blaming others for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves and about others, the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of and what we think we're not capable of, how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to 
let go of, to relinquish the various beliefs that we have about our bodies, about our mind, our emotions, our creative capacity. Beliefs that maybe we've held onto and stuffed in the crowded closet of our mind for many years. And in light of this retreat, right now, just, or any time really, just simply pay attention to our experience, just as it is in this moment. It's really so simple. It's so simple that it's hard to believe that this is all it takes. Although, as you know, though it's so simple, it's actually not so easy. The potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feelings is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, of clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experiencing of noticing the feelings of pleasant or unpleasant or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the, feel, the neutral feeling, that we can, in moments, just see, experience, and know bodily sensations, visual form, odors, sound, taste, and the manifestations of various thought forms. Know the attendant feeling tone, and that just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind, isn't disturbed. It's a moment of ease. It's a moment of peace. So another illustration, so to say, giving birth uh, for the first time 48 years ago was actually my formal, or my first uh, formal teaching and practice in mindfulness, although uh, it wasn't called that. The Lama's uh, birthing method was a training a very uh, deep training in being fully present, awake, and aware in the process, the, the birthing process, that was happening in and of itself. And, of course, that I was certainly very involved with. Throughout the training, we were told that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant, which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. 
getting myself out of the way of it, while at the same time really being totally present, engaged, and aware in the midst of it, was very intense and not easy in the way that we usually think of things being easy, but really, really quite okay. And actually, mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and really, truly filled with awe and with wonderment, which was pleasant, actually. A very powerful lesson that's continued to inform me over the years. The Buddha tells us we're happy when we're mindful. There was a pervasive happiness that accompanied me throughout the birthing process that I now clearly understand was there because I was very mindfully present in and with the process. When you engage with a full presence in the activity of any of the creative practices offered in this retreat, movement, seeing, drawing, writing. And when activity shows up as being pleasant or unpleasant or maybe neutral, one aspect of our practice is to be mindfully aware without making something out of it. That's very important. Without making something out of it. Meaning without interpreting or speculating or analyzing or evaluating. Just knowing, noticing. As we meet and as we connect to experience with an unfettered mindful presence, we in fact find authenticity, open-hearted interest, joy, and spontaneous creativity emerging. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or to push away or avoid or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with a more balanced uh, equanimity and thus less attachment, aversion and identification is really a very important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation 
of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences, just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and in fact maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified, we could say, by various mental factors or various states of mind. And so this being the third domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. And for those of you that are interested, the Pali word is citta nupasana. Mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the various mental factors, uh, various states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So, for example, we go to the marketplace the marketplace of the lunch food display here in retreat. The marketplace of where to do walking in the meditation this hour. The marketplace of which shirt to put on today. Or maybe the marketplace of thinking. So for instance, how should I move in response to the direction that has just been given by when. Maybe you'll get an opportunity to explore this one tomorrow. Recognizing that this is a thought based in the conditioned habit of needing to be in control, which is based in fear, actually. And the possibility being that for that moment, simply relaxing and letting go of self, allowing the body to move spontaneously, allowing the body to just move naturally in response. Living here in Taos, a place that uh, many people uh, visit specifically to come to the marketplace. As you see, or maybe if you've spent some time in town, there's a lot of beauty here. Beauty really abounds here. And natural beauty, of course, up here in the mountains. I went through a period of practice some years ago now, where I'd, when I first moved here, soon after I first moved here, which is quite some time ago, but where I'd walk down the street uh, and, and look into the shop windows and watch my mind and watch my body. So awareness of seeing, just seeing, seeing various forms and 
various colors, a bare attention. And then I'd notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, kind of leaning into. And even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. I need that. So greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A really good practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace actually. I continued uh, with this practice here until I finally uh, found myself more and more often just seeing the forms and the colors which would be followed uh, by simply joyfully and appreciatively, really very appreciatively, bearing witness to the beauty and the creative capacity of human beings. To sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart and of mind that are required of us are honesty and humility. Pretense, self-deception, and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So, for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, it, it really doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right to the greed or the fear or the anger or the sadness. And as you know, this isn't always so easy to do. Tremendous interest, energy and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without pretense, without self-deceit, and without judgment. You don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right said this about humility and these are her words that is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer the austerity of humility to see things as they are to see my inner being as it is good or bad to observe it as it is without defending it without justifying it without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. 
Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. In light of uh, Vimala Thakkar's words, there's a story about the Dalai Lama um, who a number of years ago uh, now was uh, taken a window shopping in some big city. I think it actually may have been London, but I'm not sure. Uh, to an area where um, there were lots and lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and systems. And the person who took him uh, to this part of the city knew that he was very particularly interested and quite fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. For instance, uh, it's fairly well known that he loves to take apart watches and uh, work on them and then put them back together again. The Dalai Lama said that when he was taken to this area of the city where all these shops were, he said that he found himself looking in the windows of the shops and at first, he said, seeing with uh, an open curiosity and interest. And then he said, all of a sudden, he realized that he wanted everything. He said he wanted all of it. And he said, and I didn't even know what most of it was for. I just wanted it. (laughs) Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, How driven am I by my desires and attachments? How driven am I by my resistance and aversions? So taking a look now at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation experience. So for instance, a moment of deep calm a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No no thought about it. Just it as it is. Just calm, just tranquility. And then, maybe quickly followed by grasping. Wanting tranquility to never leave. And maybe even some fear about losing my tranquility without judgment directly knowing this experience this experience of attachment as well this is our practice too mindfulness is able to know the mental factor, the coloration in the mind of wanting, of greed, within the greed itself. Sort of like the Dalai Lama's self-observation of his mind. Or the colorations of anger or hatred 
or fear or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, maybe from its arising, knowing its particular characteristics, meaning knowing how it acts, its changing nature, and maybe knowing its ending, its momentary cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or maybe by delight or by dullness or some form of aversion. And as I'm sure you've experienced, at least at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a sensation in the body, a movement, a visual image, a sound, a taste, thoughts in the form of memories or plans or fantasies or projections or images in the mind. And in relationship to what we were what we're exploring, some words from the Buddhist scholar Venerable Analayo. These are his words. The element, the element of non-reactive, watchful receptivity in sati, and if you remember the word sati translates as mindfulness. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana. Satipatthana are the four foundations of mindfulness. As an ingenious middle path, he says, which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear, detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from uh, the Buddhist perspective, there's a long and very detailed list uh, of the many, many and various mental factors that may come, uh, come along quite quickly to accompany and to color bare awareness of any present moment experience. This degree of perception and distinction with such minute detail as is uh, spoken about in the Abhidhamma regarding each and all of these many states of mind, it isn't really uh, 
absolutely necessary for our practice here. It's enough for you to, uh, at this point, to be mindfully aware of the more usual, usually and ordinarily experienced colorations of any given moment of consciousness as they arise and as they quickly change and as they cease. So, for instance, mindfulness knowing delight, calm, joy, kindness, faith, or liking or disliking, knowing judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear, or anger, or hatred, or irritation, or appreciation. Knowing any of these mind states in relationship to the bare awareness of an experience of seeing, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or moving, touching, thinking. And again, a reminder. The essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, between good and bad. There's no judgment. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, there's no rejecting, there's no manipulation, no judging or evaluation of experience. That's why it's so hard to develop it. That's why we practice. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, of states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. And dhamma, in this case, Uh, can be translated as the truth or the way of things or the natural laws. This domain of mindfulness can be grounded quite specifically in any of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. This fourth domain or fourth establishment of mindfulness, mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, can also be grounded in the five hindrances. And the five hindrances are sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, the grasping mind, or the aversive mind. The particular wonderful and illuminating specialty, we could say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that whatever our experience is, 
It's seen through the doors of Dhamma. It's seen through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. Whether experiences in the physical or in the mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of truth. So, for example, speaking briefly this evening about just one of the insightful doors that particularly relates to our practice in this retreat. And this is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly experientially pay attention to, recognize, and clearly come to know that every experience of body and mind is always changing. And we know this intellectually, but it's the direct experience that changes our life through our practice. Every experience of body and mind is always changing. It's impermanent. Anicca is the Pali word. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything we perceive around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and as it matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, and accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural truth. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion, or the delusion, being as though it's happening in an ongoing, flowing, continuous, smooth, flowing flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, beginning and ending, arising and passing away. On the most minute level, second by second by second. And some words from the Buddha in relationship to this. And he was speaking to his monks, so he uses the word bhikkhus for his monks. And I put in yogis for all of us. (laughs) Bhikkhus, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable to attaining nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or unpleasant, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She, 
he sees the ear as impermanent, sees the mind, mental phenomena as impermanent, sees mind consciousness as impermanent, and sees mind contact with whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāsa. Every experience is anicca, impermanent. And this is the first universal characteristic. Because of anicca, because of impermanence, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying because of anicca. And so we continue on through our lifetime searching for something, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless, endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha. Very often it's translated as suffering. But that uh, often there's a misunderstanding if it's just thought of as suffering. And this is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within the this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless is totally interdependent and constantly changing. In other words, is totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming sat or static place in the world. Our body being an immediately available example of this with all of the parts and all of the functions being totally interdependent and all all of it constantly in flux all is anatta all is empty all everything is empty of any separate solid sustaining self As we begin to directly experience and to know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the third universal characteristic of anatta, or not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindfulness. The not-self, or emptiness of all experience, the not-self or emptiness of all phenomena shows up really quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. We begin to really, truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Even our tightly grasped, seemingly set-in-place 
self-identities. The positive or wholesome self-identities and the negative or unwholesome self-identities. As we begin to intimately, experientially see and know these three universal truths, our relationship to our life begins to change. Wisdom, equanimity, relinquishment, and the flow of creative energy quite naturally begin to blossom with this seeing and knowing. And we really start to relax more, relax more and more deeply and more simply and more clearly into just simply being here with things as they really are. There's a wonderful metaphorical teaching Stephen Mitchell, the writer Stephen Mitchell's version of the Narcissus story that I'd, I'd like to share with you regarding in relationship to our discussion. And these are Stephen Mitchell's words. His version of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. In a conversation with his student, Megia, The Buddha offers us an important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. These are the Buddha's words. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now.
And so as we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation, which we may experience just very, very briefly in moments, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive through our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, resides within everything. Simply here to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly. If we just take the time to be really present and look carefully. The setting, pace, and the support offered in an intensive retreat setting such as this with formal sitting and walking and movement and seeing, drawing, and writing practice interspersed with each other is really quite a rare and a perfect opportunity to deepen your direct experience and understanding of the reality of not-self, the reality of no-self. The truth is really right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart, and within all the phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. And in some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, including your ordinary life here in retreat, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we metaphorically stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment, We're no longer conditioned by ignorance, no longer conditioned by ignoring and being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. We're no longer caught in the whirlpool of I like and I don't like, no longer caught up unaware in the whirl of continually and unwittingly moving around and around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool the medicine that allows concentration, joy, equanimity, wisdom, and creativity to blossom. 
Mindful awareness is the primary tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as that was so very graphically uh, talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine to purify the sickness and heal ourselves. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind. The world going on just as it is. The world going on outside and inside just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing. Coming and going. No different than anything else in the world. Nothing to argue with and nothing to cling to. One of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe kind of a great relief for uh, those who think that they have to practice many, many things, have to practice many, many Dhammas to be liberated from suffering. In Pali, the word for this Dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can be understood as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the suttas as mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one Dhamma that we need to practice. In relationship to vigilance and the open-hearted receptivity of practicing with the clear, focused mindfulness, I'd like to share some words from Carlos Castaneda. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they're filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of awe, says Carlos. It's one of my favorite teachings, especially for this retreat. We don't grow in a straight line, but rather in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality that we could call awe in relationship to the way of things.
And I'd like to close the retreat with a short uh, poem by Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. <laughs> Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on. Upside down. (laughs) And let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.